Hello and welcome to this week's Betting People, where I have the honour and privilege of being joined by Jess Stafford, a woman of many talents, um, most commonly seen, I think it's fair to say, on RTV, although um, she is also known as the face of furlough thoroughbreds, and we're going to get into lots of that over the course of this interview. But first things first, um, there's been a lot of governance issues in racing recently, so I want to ask you, what three things would you change if you were in charge of British racing? I would uh, tear up the race program, start again. I would uh, re relook at the levy board and how uh, our, our racing is funded. And I'd install a strong and dynamic leader. And I would have governance, which I could be proud of, that I could feel allows us to be inspired. I am normally a pretty positive person and I've been in racing now my whole, obviously my whole life, but professionally for the last six or seven years. And I began very positive and um, normally saw the better side of, of any disappointments. Um, but I've come to the conclusion now that we don't have a strong enough leader, a strong enough purpose for racing to stand on its on its legs and be be proud of itself and I think the way that racing is set up is essentially bound to fail there's too much bureaucracy there is not enough there's not enough leadership that can inspire me as a younger person in racing um obviously things like the program books things like prize money things about like facilities getting more people to racing is just part of the product but we can't change any of that until we have uh, a very specific route that is controlled by perhaps it's more obviously it has to be more than one person and there are so many aspects of racing that needs to be represented but there needs to be strong leadership that we can be proud of and sadly the BHA whether they want to be a leader or not or they want to be the governance behind the leadership the, the various leaders and they just want to be representative and they want to be whatever they want to be they're still the british horse racing authority and for me i look to them for leadership and for purpose and i need them to give us the answers and i don't see that and i was disappointed when i heard um the the the, the new head of the bha Joe Summers Smith come in and not give me that total confidence behind what he wants to set up to achieve. Mm. I didn't hear from his interview with Nick Luck recently an answer that got me really excited and really positive. Um, he was asked about his vision for the sport and where the, the sport would be in his mind in 10 years time and how we can look and feel better. And he, his answer was, that's not for me to answer. And that was really bad. I thought, I thought it might not be what you want. That's, it might not be for you to answer in stages because obviously you want everyone to be part of the conversation. But I want someone just to say, I want this to be the best place to go racing in the world. I want someone to say, we can be the best in class. We can be world leaders. We can be leading the way for owners, jockeys, trainers, participants. I want to be that and I will do everything I can to make that happen. That's what I want. And at the moment, I'm not hearing any of that. 
So with that in mind, um, are there any figures you think could provide that, that inspiration, that pride that you feel is so sorely lacking um, in the leadership of British racing? Do you have any names in mind? And also, is there anything you've seen overseas um, that you think we should be adopting here? Because you made the point about us being the best in class. Um, but there's so many positive experiences we hear about in world racing in terms of how things are done and what the governance is like, what the prize money is like. Um, where should we be looking to um, overseas? Australia, Japan, Hong Kong. Obviously, they've all got different rules and regulations. They've got different ways of uh, working with the bookmakers. They've got, uh, for lots of reasons, they're not perfect either. And when I say best in class, I don't. we aren't best in class right now, but I want us to be best in class. I think there are jurisdictions that are striving to be best in class. Uh, I think that the way that Australia set up, set up allows them to be, um, they use COVID and lockdown and wagering and more people, more eyes on racing during that time as a opportunity to gain more share of share of the pool and get more money back into racing. Um, I see um, the healthy competition that's between the jurisdictions within Australia as a as a good way to to allow racing to move forward. We have race courses that are divided up between, obviously there are independents, but the ARC and the Jockey Club, they should be, there should be healthy competition between each other instead of being so roads apart and so very different. They should be both wanting each other to be better. And that's what they seem to be doing well in Australia. Obviously Japan has a model that is very different, is very unusual. There's a different system of ownership and a different system of training and the amount of horses that some owners can have with different trainers and all things like that but it seems to work with them and they've got the product is working so well that it allows more people to get involved um hong kong gambling for them is part of their culture whereas we're scared of it and slightly embarrassed of it here um there's obviously learnings to to use from everywhere unfortunately a lot of the leaders that i see within the game would never take up a position of power you know i look at john gosden and i think this man has traveled all over the world and seen many mm. aspects of racing and he's an intelligent man that would be an absolute brilliant spokesperson for our sport internationally and i would would love him to play more of an active um sort of role in consulting our sport but you know that's not within his interest his interest in training horses and I do think sadly because of the way the nature of these roles we end up having figureheads that might have come from a you know not that it's a bad thing coming from a betting uh, from a betting companies and things like that because they're obviously paramount into the fabric of racing but they don't necessarily see the the intrinsic needs that the sports the you know the, the horseman needs um, and I think we've really struggled to find that piece, you know, the, the, the Peter Savile type who was brilliant in his time going back 20, 30 years ago, um, because racing has become so large now and there are so many people that need to be represented. So it is a, it's a catch 22 situation. Um, but I think there needs, then there doesn't seem to be a person that exists that can bring all strands of needs together um, credibly. And it's uh, it, that person just doesn't exist at the moment. But I, 
and I and I struggle and I and I can understand why it happens because it's not necessarily a job that anyone wants to take on, is it? Um, and it's a it's a tricky situation, but I do think that racing the, the the leaders that are there set out at the moment have just been shooting themselves into the foot by not not following through with the the policies that we we've we've set out could just benefit you know for example um recently this week and the the scrapping of the of the race of the key races to to mm. dilute the race pro program to essentially benefit the competitiveness of our racing totally field sizes um is very much linked to that so we, you know the race program many people see it as being far too big and far too overloaded and recently we've had a huge problem with field sizes and also horses um leaving the country uh more and more horses leaving the country um what policies do you think would be helpful in trying to combat these two problems because it's something that everybody's um now noticing and you know punters aren't happy with it obviously um indeed actually within courses who are happy with it and also the paying race go in some in some instances we're seeing a lot of this um what's what's to be done basically about those two key things because um they're becoming bigger issues with every passing week it seems yeah well the first point you make about field sizes i mean we've literally just we've just witnessed the controversial decision that the Julie Harrington and the 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 members were on her side have have essentially did, uh, not gone through with their own policy, which is bemusing, frustrating. That would have been, as they as as the, as the statement said, it would have been a tactical change, but it would have been something that felt like something is being done to try and improve the situation. The field sizes is. is the lack of field sizes, um, quality in the field sizes because there's too much racing. Too much racing is because the race courses demand it. They want mm. they want more racing because of their profits. We're not we're not working for the better of the wider, for the macro scale for the product. Again, I'll go back to the interview that I listened to with Joe Summers Smith talking about the consumer and understanding about data and wanting to know more about the consumers that come into the race course and what their interests are and and trying to get inside the mind of people to um, to then improve racing that for me is completely the wrong take you know if i had a if i had a shop with clothes that i'm trying to sell that are too expensive there's only three of them so they're not interested people come in they look at it and think that's expensive there's not enough for me to be interested in i'm just going to walk out again i don't say what's wrong with the people that's coming in i should have a look at what's wrong within my shop we need to solve what's going on with inside the sport first before we get worried about the people that are coming in. People are only going to be attracted to racing if they feel like it's something attractive to go to. So that's the first initial problem that I have with the strategy, seemingly that this route that we're going down. We're so worried about data and consumer behavior. Behavior doesn't because the people that are coming into the race meetings are coming in for it for the wrong purpose anyway. Because if I was a member of the paying public coming racing. I'm not going because I think it's great racing at Aintree tonight. I'm going because it's a Friday night and I'm going to hang out with my friends. The people that are going racing to Cheltenham, to Aintree, to Ascot, to Goodwood are going for the quality of racing. It's all, this, it's all the parts in and around it. So why do we have so much? I don't know. We, we, don't, we can't afford to have it anyway. We don't have the prize money. And that leads me on to our next question about why horses go. And from a personal perspective with our racehorses that we have, we had a horse that won four times last year. He's a more of a mid-range horse. He was started at a rating of 70, ended up with a rating of 89 at the end of the season. 
he won four races and he couldn't afford to keep himself in training. His, we had to ask our syndicate members to come back and pay an extra £2,000 to keep him going for this season. We could have sold that horse off to Hong Kong, wherever it was, for, say, I don't know, £100,000 today. He's probably attractive for that market. But then you're going to divide out the money that everyone has paid, that everyone has paid, say they get, say they get a couple of thousand pounds back up off the back of it. For us to then go up back and say, right, why don't we go off and buy another horse? And we're back to square one, trying to buy the same horse to do the same job to then sell again. What we should be doing is getting double that prize money, having enough money to go off and buy another horse so that actually we're growing our pie and we have more horses that we're with we're racing instead of chipping away at one horse and getting more people to spend on it it doesn't make any sense and again it's a it's an obvious answer i'm afraid but it comes down to the prize money why should a horse in that class class three class four range not being able to earn his his keep for the year it it makes no sense to me I think a lot of people would agree with that. And I think it's a great place to end part one. Thank you very much, Jeff Stafford. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to Betting People with Jeff Stafford of Furlow Thoroughbreds. Um, now, I'm very keen to ask, um, and I do this with all my interviews, but we've had people from a range of backgrounds who've found racing through many different ways. Um, first things first, how did you get into the sport? So, um, my parents uh, started up solo thoroughbreds when I was four, with my along with my uncle. Um, for anyone that isn't familiar with them, they're a racing syndicate and um, which brings in groups of people together. May originally from London, sort of city people, um, people that are that, that enjoy racing but mm. want to take out the the the, uh, the pain painful elements of all the admin and the buying the horses um, and managing a bit all. Mm. And we started then in ninety. 94 and I've been going ever since and for me it was something I didn't have much option I was brought around everywhere from the from my from the day I was day I was born racing um on the gallops and then it it was something that I not necessarily didn't I wasn't forced into it. it wasn't something that I my parents said you have to get you have to come along you have to be part of it but I just was hooked I'm an incredibly competitive person um by nature and I think I love the competitiveness of it. Um, very, very proud of what we have created with Thurlow. Um, it's a very difficult game to be in now. Um, and I, from a young age, was really hooked on the buying and the bloodstock side. So I started going to the sales with my dad from a young age. And I've become part of the, um, the whole setup of it now, buying horses with them, race planning, um, going on the gallops working with the trainers, working uh, with the jockeys and the owners and making sure it's a great experience. So it's a big part of my life and something that I hope to keep going because um, we don't have many horses now, um, as many as we used to, but we are um, proud of our small little select number and we hope to keep it going. But that was my route into racing originally, like it was always part of me, but mm. I went to school, university, and when I went to university, I definitely didn't think I'd get into racing as a job. I thought I'd always have Thurlow as a background, but I wanted to do something else because I wanted to get a good perspective on, on what I could do, what I could challenge myself. As I said, very competitive. So it was like challenging what I, what I could be good at. 
um, read history at Trinity Dublin and stayed in Ireland where I worked in a PR agency, um, which got me back into racing. Ireland is a wonderful place to be because they have a link to racing wherever you go. Mm -hmm. And um, they needed more support on their racing accounts, especially for Guinness and the Galway Festival. So I did a lot of stuff there. Um, and then when I moved back to London, I actually got a job at Betfair and uh, worked there for three and a bit years. And again, I think racing, having a niche in racing and specializing it and knowing about the sport is quite unusual when you're in, especially betting companies, you underestimate how many people actually know about racing. And uh, there was probably about two or three in a team, about 20 or 30 that actually knew about the details of it. And um, so I used that skill, I suppose. Um, and that's led me onto a path into presenting because I, as you can tell, all I can do is talk about it. So it's got me to this presenter role now. Um, so it's been a bit of an unusual route up to it, but definitely one that I wouldn't change because it's given me the opportunity to see all areas of, the working world from sport and, and now racing. Mm. Um, you listed lots of the responsibilities that you've got there. Um, how do you balance those commitments? Because, you, you know, just in a typical week, just in the last week, you've been interviewing everybody at Epsom um, for TVG. Um, you also do a lot of race planning um, as well. You might be buying one day, um, you know, next day along. Um, <laughs> do you ever stop really <laughs> and how do you balance it because you know today as I speak to you you're off to Goodwood uh, after this um so actually could you take us through sort of let's say a typical a typical week and what it might involve because there's probably a lot of prep as we all know for race day presenting and of course when you're going to the sales and such you're going through the catalogue books etc it's um a lot yeah. to happen Oh, yeah. And I suppose I think a couple of weeks ago when I was up at the Doncaster sales, we were selling a horse um, and I was also looking around just in case of something that caught my eye. We're not necessarily into those stores, but I just wanted to go up there. I was up there on a Sunday selling a horse on a Wednesday, looking through the horses on the Monday and Tuesday. Um, but I was also at Chelmsford presenting on the Thursday. So I used the Tuesday afternoon to prep for Chelmsford while I was up at Doncaster and then drove from Doncaster to Chelmsford on the Thursday. Um, and then I had, um, and then I had something else on the Friday. I think I had another, I think I was in the studio on the Friday. So yeah, you do have to get into, I'm a, I like to plan as much as I can. Like I have a written out diary and I write everything down, which I know I can do. And then I like to fill in the gaps. Like I work for racing TV 16 days a month. Um, so when I get my schedule and I've got a couple of days where I know that I'm not working before a race meeting that I'm, I'm at, I will make sure that I'm either on the gallops, at the sales, up at home, where I'm helping my parents um, or doing anything because I don't like not, I don't like sitting still. Um, also, this is such a strange life, like you could be working on a Saturday night um, on a Sunday, but not working Monday and a Tuesday. So I've got to fill up those days because I'm not going to sit around. Um, and I just think things pass you by otherwise you've got to keep your finger on the pulse in this game like you've got to keep your like wits about you things are changing all the time um, like race in terms of racing and knowing where to place our horses races are coming up all the time making sure that our horses are at their prime um, you know planning events that we might be doing for furlough that takes organisation so there's plenty to do but it's I need to always be very organized and be my central focus is 
at the end of the day presenting. Um, so I spent all of Wednesday, um, once the declarations came out for Goodwood today, going through every single horse that's running, making sure I know all their form, what, watching all of their last races, writing down all their notes so that today when I go off um, to Goodwood, I've got everything listed out so I know every horse. So everything is kind of working back from the next yeah. day um, and then filling in where I can do, try to do furlough and um, then TVG, obviously, on top of that too. Um, now, in race planning, um, also in sort of the race analysis um, as well, you know, I imagine there's a lot of individual study of certain races. And I just wondered if you, you know, do you handicap, um, you know, races? Will you, for, for example, when trying to get, um, say, for example, buzz or whatever, also like the best opportunity, you'll be looking at your opposition a lot. Um, do you do you assess um, race day fields in the same way that, say, uh, a handicap or a punt or a tips towards? Um, and, and what's your method for doing that? Yeah, I think I do. I don't think I've changed much since I was young. Like when I was growing up, I would get the racing post, hmm. the old an old school racing post. I love the form aspects of a racing post where you can see all of their last races. Obviously, you can now do it online. But that, it, like, I would always look at what's the horse rated, what was their last race form are they on a downward trajectory or on an upward trajectory that's always important to me where they are compared to their handicap mark especially obviously in handicaps um the better the race slightly the easier it is because i think it gets a little bit obvious if you've got reached the pinnacle of, of a horse's talent or whether um they're just that you know fairly unexposed but handicaps are the the tricky one and that's the that's the puzzle that's always the best to solve um so love to incorporate all the factors and try to just find the value there and as you say i definitely look at it as i do with our own horses if i know one of our horses is well handicapped look at look at it in and around the rest of the field that they're running against because nine times out of ten there's going to be another horse that's pretty well handicapped as well so i as you yeah you're right i do it just like i do with when i'm looking when i'm planning for our own horses um, and I try and find the main dangers, but the difference is from what I'm looking at Goodwood say today or Ascot next week. I, I know the horses based on what I've seen in their races, how they how their their running styles like, how the track will suit them. Just trying to use my own methodology to try and pick out something that's caught my eye. And sometimes there's no reason for it. A horse can just run in a style. That's why it's so important to watch races back. Horse can run in a style that's just made you think today is going to be their day. They've got their conditions, they've got the track. Tracks are so important um, to get the best out of a horse. And the more I go racing around the country, the more I can sort of see that. Like I've become a bit of a specialist at Chelmsford now because of that's what's where I go to. Um, so all of those elements are crucial, but the one key bit that you get the privilege you get when you've got horses that you own or you manage is that you know exactly what they're like at home you know their characters you know if it takes them two or three races to get ready you know how well that they are um and you know if they're if they're just like getting to getting to the point where they're probably at that right handicap mark so all those all those bits so that's that's what changes it and that's the edge that you need when you're running syndicates because you need to be able to make sure that you're getting the best out of them all the time um whereas it's based based on judgment when you're just handicapping them mm. uh, yes indeed and uh, for that um when you're presenting uh on a race day for example racing tv or tvg 
Um, what's the setup and what and how's that day go? You know, what's the planning for that day? Because obviously, um, you know, just like I'm interviewing you, you'll be interviewing uh, lots of women connections. Um, and I wonder, is it something where you go with the flow and you just and you get the winners and you try to make the best out of that? Um, or will there sometimes be pre-arranged interviews or will you sort of just take it as it comes? Um, because two race days can be very different. They can be a great difference mm. between um, Epsom, for example, and say even Goodwood today, just based on what's happening in the vibe and the feel of the race course. Yeah, and look, you can't plan for anything. It's live. Anything can happen. So that's mm. why you have to look at every single horse because any horse has the opportunity to win. So you've got to keep in mind whoever it might be. Like I was up at Thursk the other day and Nigel Tinkler had a double and I think it was like a 200 to one double. One of the horses was 50 to one and you've got to be prepared for anything. And after that, his owners were there. They had got on the double. They had won six grand. I was interviewing them. So it's just obviously knowledge about the horses is brilliant but the people surrounding it is so much more of an opportunity to get out those stories and and I think that makes up the rich fabric of racing there are so many people that have a story to share and I get much more of a kick out of that than anything else um when I do get the opportunity to meet people it's fabulous speaking to trainers um you know you want to my job is to get the best out of them not to try and show especially and also that's the same when I'm working with a pundit I don't obviously I I can have my opinion but mm. I want to know I need to get the best out of them that's what they're employed to do the trainer is the the be all never all be all and end all they know everything about their horse the jockey knows everything about the ride I need to get out the best information out of them as opposed to trying to offer my own opinion so it's it's trying to find all the angles and being very quick, quick thinking, um, you've got to use your initiative in this game. And that it doesn't matter if you're presenting, you're handicapping, you're um, working behind the scenes, you're writing a story, whatever it is, you've got to use your initiative. And I've always thought that all my life, like just back yourself. Sometimes it is extremely hard to do. Um, got to have the confidence to back yourself. And I don't know if I'm necessarily always that confident because it can be an overwhelming situation when you've got Aidan O'Brien about to walk over to you and you need to think of something clever, interesting, unusual to say after he's just spoken to Lydia Hislop for half an hour. That's intimidating. Um, but the more I do it, the more I learn, the more I feel like I'm trying better to do better. Um, and that's all you can do, but you can never plan for these things. And, you know, today I could have an extremely unusual situation and something might happen that I would never have expected to but those are the challenges that I think that make this job really interesting and I am excited for potentially that to happen um, because it can bring out the best of me or I can learn from it and it, something awful could happen but I like to hope it could bring out something good. Absolutely um, I think many people would agree that it has and I think that's a great place to end part two. Hello and welcome to the third and final part of my interview with Jess Stafford. Um, I want to jump in and actually circle back on some really interesting comments you made um, in part one, uh, namely about the product that British racing provides um, and the reason people go. Um, and it's been well documented that there have been efforts to get, um, you know, younger people into racing. And I was just wondering, um, you know, 
if you were in in charge, how would you get um, more people going to courses? We've seen some dwindling attendances and obviously things are a bit tough for people at the moment. And secondly, how would you get more young people there, um, hopefully to enjoy the sport as well as um, all the other things that go with it? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I've actually got a friend of mine who's my age, 30, going off to Goodwood tonight with a group of friends. Um, thought it was very random because she's not someone that would go racing that often. So I asked her why she's going along and she said a friend of hers lives nearby Goodwood and he's decided to bring a group of people together to come and stay with him and thought it'd be something different than doing something in London on a Friday night. And I thought that was brilliant. And you only need that one person to come up with the idea to make it happen. But why has that person thought about it? Yes, he lives nearby. That race course has done a good job in their surrounding area to try and get people thinking about the racing that's on. Perhaps there is um, an offer for groups. I think pricing, racing is so important. Royal Ascot, as wonderful as it is, has really put itself off by making it completely unaffordable for people of my age. If I wanted to take a group of people racing, I wouldn't. I would want it to be, um, you know, enticing. I want it to be attractive to to a group of people because you've got to spend money when you're there. So pricing of tickets needs to be really looked at. Um, there should be a young person's night, or you know, there should be a, 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 a some sort of workaround. You know, owner tickets. If there are, if there are lots of horses running and there aren't many owners attending you know who's going to use those who's funding the tickets that well like why can't why can't we do a concession when there's gets the point in five days to go there aren't that many people coming along so you know to get people through the gates we'll take we'll, we'll, we'll have a cost incentive there needs to be real a really good strategic way about the way that we cost up race going racing um and it can start from a younger age, much younger. I was part of the Trinity Horse Racing Society at, um, at, over in Dublin, where I, which I ran um, after Jack Cantillon did, who's a, another big name in the sport. And he set up the Student Race Day, where, which brought students throughout the country to Leopardstown for free racing to get people interested. In. Now, 100 people might go from one university and there could be two or three that might come back again. But at least that is two or three more than nothing. So it is coming up with creative ideas to get people through the gates. Um, but you do just need that one person to take that initiative like we've got going on this evening. Um, and I think that's probably because he lives in the right part of the world. He's in and amongst it. He's seen one person that is, that's in intense, um, sparks his enthusiasm. But we need to go out and be a little bit more proactive when it comes to that. And it all starts with like making something attractive. And they do that at festivals. They do that, you know, if there's, there's, there's something that grips you in um, and just making something affordable can, can help that. Yeah, absolutely, um, especially with uh, budgets under much tighter strain. Um, one thing actually I'm also interested in is uh, what routes do you think um, would be helpful when it comes to getting not just people, young people through the gates racing, but also getting, I think, more young people to work in racing or, or and possibly the racing media because we we've seen i think some young analysts coming through um but also some people say and i think it's fair point maybe racing needs to be 
a little more diverse. And indeed, there was the recent, um, some might say, scandal of the all-male um, Derby Couples Awards dinner thing. Um, and I was just wondering if you think there's any improvements racing can make in that area. The one issue that racing does have is that it's it's a small world. Um, there are there's only two everyday racing channels: Sky Sports Racing, Racing TV, obviously ITV as well. Um, but there are two racing channels. If you think about if you're working in news or politics or whichever, there's there's a much bigger pool of opportunity to get involved. So we've got a limit a limit. We've only got one trade paper. We've got a lot of online um, content now as well. But it's, you find a lot of people, you know, I, I work for SBK um, on top of a role with Racing TV, on top of a role with TVG. I don't just have one job. And that's because I, I, as I said to you earlier, I need to be busy. I want to have as much as possible. But me having an additional role somewhere else means that someone wouldn't, wouldn't get that opportunity. Now, is that fair? I think it is because I need to have as much as possible um, I need to keep my profile profile large and I wouldn't be busy enough in my mind without it. Um, and also one person couldn't just do that job on its own. It's just, it doesn't, it's not, it, 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 I wouldn't be able to afford to just do one job on its own. But that's the problem. But then there again, that's the catch 22, that that's the problem. There's just not enough roles out there, but that doesn't mean we can't as we go back again to our other point, reconstruct racing so that there are opportunities. I think that the betting industry is a, was a great um, roll through for me and that I was able to see an aspect of racing that I knew enough about from my own you know, personal hobbies side, um, getting to understand um, uh, the gambling industry, but working within it gave me a bit of a wider view of it and it educated me. And I think that that maybe not is of interest to as many people, but it definitely gives you plenty of opportunities so I think yes everyone there could be lots of people and I love now looking at Twitter that there is a lot of more plenty more females now that are into into um, you know blogging into make creating videos into photography you know I'm thinking of Fran Altos she's brilliant mm. she's like you know it's such a great figure now in racing um, there's the Zoe Smith who's doing a lot on tote like there's lots of there's lots of female presence around which is brilliant but I, what I like about them is that they're carving out something that's a little bit different. They're going down routes that kind of challenge them. It's wonderful to think that everyone could just want to become a presenter one day. And obviously I'm lucky to be in the role that I'm in, but I've gone through different hoops to give me a more rounded view outside of it. And I don't think people should be scared of that, um, going off and doing something a little bit different um, that can give you a bigger perspective you know you yourself you go off and do politics you can see that yeah. and I think there's a lot of there is a lot of um transferable skills there so if racing isn't working right now for you in terms of getting involved I wouldn't be worried about doing something else within sport because I think we can learn a lot about other sports we can learn a lot about formula one we can learn a lot about golf tennis football go and do that challenge yourself and come back in because that will that will your racing interest will never go away um but that we've, we've they're coming up with great programs at the moment to get people more um involved and do training programs and doing um uh, internships and things like that i just feel and i worry that there aren't enough roles 
to go around for everyone. Um, not because, not because there is, you know, the industry obviously needs more talent, that needs more people, but it's just extremely competitive. I know that there, there were plenty of people that went for the junior presenter role that I'm in now at Racing TV, and it just that's that's just the way it was. We couldn't, it couldn't be catered for everyone. You could see how many presenters there are, and on ITV there are a lot of talented people out there. It's just, it is a hard world. Um, and you've just got to be thick-skinned and try everything you can to, to better yourself professionally. Um, and, and then whatever, and I do believe like good things happen for a reason and you'll get, you'll get, to, you'll get to that point. Um, so hopefully, you know, if you back yourself and have the confidence, and I said that, I talked about confidence. And it's a funny world, like I go in, on Twitter, which is a bit of a cesspit, um, and I had a lot of difficulty on it early on because I was nervous about raising my own opinion, nervous about that people would just assume I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, nervous that I would say things that people just, people also want you to fail sometimes. People want you to not do well because they, they find it irritating. Don't know why I had a lot of that. Um, so I found it easier talking about furlough stuff because that's uh, something that it, it's not about my opinion. It's just about the horses. So sometimes, yeah, sometimes it is all about confidence um, and Twitter can be quite a tricky place. So I've got a lot of respect for people that base a lot of their working culture around it because, yeah, it can be a little bit terrifying as well at times. <laughs> did, you, did you ever consider leaving Twitter at any point? Uh, did it ever get uh, that bad that you, that you thought it might be best not to be there? Uh, not leaving it, but definitely not using it as much. Um, you know, there were a couple of moments earlier on about a couple of years ago where I was very naive and I went on, T you know, lucky to be on TVG. TVG, by the way, is something that came out of my work with Betfair. Yeah. They're part of the same conglomerate, part of Flutter. Um, and I pushed hard to go over to TVG. I worked out in LA with them for a while and it was something I earned out of good work at Betfair. It's not something that's fallen in my lap. And I really am proud of working for them and I want to do a good job, but I have pushed them to get me on every week and there were a couple of times where I would say something that maybe is a bit controversial maybe not agree that everyone agrees with that one one thing that I said did get reposted and it didn't it offended a few people and I got a lot of abuse from people about it and it did get me down but it's also made me probably thicker skinned and I know that this game is all about opinions. People are not going to agree with me. And that is absolutely fine. And I'd rather people not agree with me and I've made my own opinion and I stand by it than someone just not like me for no reason. Hmm. I don't, I, I find it really, I, I, it, it stresses me out sometimes if someone just doesn't like me for no reason at all. I'd rather them not like me because they don't agree with me. And I'm like, fine, whatever, it's an opinion. Then they just don't like the sound of me. It's just that probably something that I've, always grown up just to want to get on with someone wants to show them respect and get the respect back as well so that's why twitter i can find quite hard um but you know that's just me personally let me ask you about another um part of your jobs or, or various jobs um fellow thoroughbreds um first of all just quickly uh, well you described it in part one but but how does the membership work um am i right in thinking it's a sort of high clear model where there are a group of people inside furlough um who may get offered um shares in horses as their boards um buzz obviously is, is a, the biggest example um 
is it that everybody has a piece of every horse or that you're a member of the club and then you get offered um, shares or whatever in various prospects? Yeah, so what we do is we go off and buy the horses, my dad and I and our bloodstock agents, and then we essentially, we, we uh, underwrite it. So we, we know that when, when we buy them, that we have to go out and get the syndicate members. So it's a bit like buying a horse on spec as a trainer and then trying to go and get an owner. But we've got a good uh, list of um, members um, that gone back, spans back 30 years and people that might have been off for a few years and want to come back. So we send the emails out to and say, we bought this horse and that horse. We're selling them at X amount for 12, 15 shares. And it's a first come first serve basis. If you're interested, you'll come back, you'll say yes. And we are really lucky by the, the loyalty that a lot of our shareholders have given us because prior to Buzz, we were really struggling. Um, we didn't have the ammunition. We had a lot of injuries, horses that weren't good enough. And we got to the point when the syndicate, we created the furlough for Royal Marsden Syndicate. It was one of our last chances to just, just to do something that we felt like gave back a little bit to a cause that was very important to us. Um, we didn't think that it would, we hoped that we would do a, do a bit of good for the charity, but we never thought we would even earn enough money to give them a huge amount. We just wanted to give them some good PR with the, with the, the logos on the silks, on the jockey silks. Um, and so we got, well, I remember when Buzz first won, we made sure that Nico de Boinville talked about it in his interview. Please talk about the fact that we're giving 25% of our prize money to the Royal Marsden, even, even if it was dribs and drabs of 500 pounds here and there. So the fact that it's actually turned out to have a horse like Buzz winning the Cesarowicz, being the high, high profile he is, has really changed furlough massively. Um, so we're extremely proud that it's provided such a positive story um, that he has been our flagship, that people know of us again. I don't think people re remembered that we used to have good horses. Um, so yeah, and that's why, hence why I've documented his recovery very specifically because he is such an important horse for us. And um, we are very proud of the fact that now, based on that, we've been able to pick ourselves up again and buy more horses. So we've got 10 horses in training and um, eight flat horses two of them that are going to Royal Ascot next week and we're sort of rejuvenated ourselves again but it's funny how one good horse can sort of pick you pick you up and um yeah we're very proud of him so fingers crossed he he gets back on track indeed uh can I just ask for a cheeky update um how's our star doing <laughs> yeah I saw him a couple of weeks ago um I gave him a walk around which was great because normally he's usually so fresh I wouldn't want to walk him but I walked him myself and he was great He's now in his pen um, where he goes out three hours a day. He's got his front shoes on now, which is a huge move um, to have his shoes back on. He hasn't had them on for nearly six months. And his pen will turn into a nursery. So it will be a bigger ground for him to cover. And as long as Nicky Henderson is happy, who I saw recently, and he is, he'll hopefully come back into seven barrows at the end of August. And um, until Red, who sits on him and has looked after him since day one, knows it sits on him he, we won't know how he is right? we won't know whether he's feeling the same we, we just don't know but all I know is that whatever happens he'll have a happy life whether it is racing or not because he seems to be in good spirits with himself so um we'll get a scan to see whether the pelvis is healed over the next few weeks um but so far so good so 
um, you'll be able to see the updates. So I'll definitely post them because anytime I post anything about Buzz, it goes mad. <laughs> He's got like such a law following now. Um, so I feel it's my uh, duty to keep the Buzz fan club up to date. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Um, what a great place thing to end with from the great interview. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Um, you can catch Jess um, pretty much here, there and everywhere, but she'll be on <laughs> TVG this coming week for you. TVG every day at Royal Ascot with Nick Luck and Scott Hazelton. Um, so really looking forward to it. Hopefully there'll be an American winner in amongst all the international stars coming. Um, but it would be even better and even bigger joy if one of the Thurlow horses run well. <laughs>